Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring the deeper mysteries of life, faith and meaning. My name is Dom Faye. I'm joined by Reverend Sue Wilton, as always. Hello, Sue. Hi, Dom. Good to be here. And uh, we've got a very special guest uh, uh, in in town from America at the moment, um, the very Reverend Professor Andrew McGowan, who has told me to refer to him just as Andrew for the rest of the podcast, but there's the official title to begin things, uh, the Dean of the Berkeley Divinity School um, and a man who's... Uh, explored the history of early Christianity quite extensively. Thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. Thank you, Dom. It's good to be here, and thank you, Sue. Um, now, what are you in town for? What's, what's brought you over from America? Well, I'm here, and by the way, people have noticed that I don't sound like an American by now. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I am an Australian expatriate in America, but um, I'm here in Brisbane for the annual conference of the Australian and New Zealand Association of Theological Schools, which gets... Uh, bundled up as ANZATs, and each year the ANZATs group meets with uh, theologians, scholars of different disciplines that relate to theology, and they come together and hear a couple of keynote speakers and also have uh, papers that share their own particular research and expertise and so forth. So it's a, a conference on this week at Emmanuel College at the University of Queensland with a variety of speakers and topics and ideas, and I'm giving a number of lectures on the topic of sacrifice. And sacrifice is a concept we will be exploring, I guess, throughout this podcast, um, the, the, I guess, the roots of the idea of sacrifice and how that has been maybe um, misconstrued uh, over time. As I guess a bit of a launching point, though, Andrew, I'm interested to, to know um, when and why, I guess, early Christianity became such a, a fascination point for you. Oh, uh, well, that is an interesting question. Um there's so much about the church today that really depends upon its ancient roots in ways that people sometimes understand and sometimes don't. And as I uh, studied myself for ordination and, and priesthood uh, more years ago than I care to note, um, this came to be clearer to me. I'd actually already studied ancient history in my first degree at university before that, and I found that the, the connections between the ancient Greek and Roman worlds and the the emergence of early Christianity in still that cultural and historical environment helped to cast a, a lot of light upon things that maybe get taken for granted and perhaps are or are not well understood in the life of the church. So the ways in which we worship today are still based on things that were really formed in, say, the 3rd and 4th centuries, the, the canon of Scripture itself as a body of writing is put together through these centuries, the, the creeds, the way that Christians define their key doctrines are also put together in these first few centuries and so on. So it seems to me that the ancient church holds a lot of explanatory power for why aspects of the church and its life are the way they are. But just as importantly, there are some extraordinary figures, um, personalities, writings, uh, and for that matter, even material evidence, objects and art and so forth, which come from this time that people still find inspiring and interesting, that things to go back to not only for a kind of historical self-understanding, but also places to go back to, to resource and to inspire them as they think about their own faith and, and their own life. We were just discussing before we started recording how I mentioned my experience in the church had been very much in this particular part of history. And I think that's most people's probably religious experience, um, especially in churches which might have done away with um, hymns or, or some of these older traditions that are part of the, their worship service. You very much walk into a church which maybe was founded 10 years ago, 20 years ago, has been doing things this certain way and doesn't really look any further forward than 10 years. And so you you can very easily 
on your faith exploration journey, miss the richness of why things might have started and, and where this where we came from, where this tradition started and, and where it came from. Um, and I guess a big part of that is how we view sacrifice. So that's might, might be where we move into this now. Um, sacrifice obviously is a pretty pivotal part, uh, for better and worse, throughout history of the, the Christian tradition. Can you just tell us, I guess, um, what the place of sacrifice was in, in the earliest uh, traditions that we have? Well, perhaps I, I could go back a step even to the place of sacrifice in the societies where Christianity emerges, which is really why Christianity has to think about sacrifice itself, because it's it's a part of the, the air that they breathe. Um, Judaism, out of which Christianity emerges, has a sacrificial system. It's It's the religious core of Judaism in the time of Jesus, is to go to the temple and to take part in a variety of religious rituals that we would call sacrifices, where animals or um, grain offerings uh, were made to God on a daily basis. And this was really understood to be the heart of what ancient Judaism was about. In Greek and Roman and other ancient Near Eastern contexts, similarly, people would go to temples on a daily or a weekly or a yearly basis. There were so many different gods, so many different festivals, so many different purposes of sacrifice. But typically... Wherever you were in the ancient Mediterranean world, you would be expected to go to somebody's temple and offer them something if you wanted something to happen, or if something had happened, or if something might happen. So sacrifice is really the ancient word for religion, you might say. There isn't really uh, another way of teasing the difference between religion and the rest of life apart in the ancient world, but it's really about making offerings. Of course, it doesn't mean that they don't have other forms of what we would call religious practice. Of course, they sing songs, of course, they say prayers, and they have other forms of communal life and communal ritual that we would call religious. But if you asked an ancient person, I think, what constituted the part of their lives that was specifically oriented towards the service of the god or gods to whom they held allegiance, then sacrifice is what they do. So when Christianity emerges, it's not really about, are we going to have anything to do with sacrifice? It's, what are we going to have to do with sacrifice? And we see a number of Things emerge very early on um, in in the life of the of the earliest Christian church that we can get historical access to about this. In fact, the earliest times, the first few decades after the the life of Jesus, for instance, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing, and Christians, including Christians who were uh, including Christians who were Jews, I would say, but Jews in particular, would continue to go to the temple in Jerusalem. We imagine and to offer sacrifices there, even though they would later imagine that that wasn't necessary because Jesus himself had become a kind of sacrifice. To that we can return, I'm sure. But for for 40 years or so, um, people like Paul, for instance, Paul um, St. Paul is depicted as at least getting ready to go and offer a sacrifice in the Temple of Jerusalem just before he gets arrested. So this was apparently something which was still conceivable for early Christians to do. It was just a normal part of their life, at least if they were Jews. Doesn't seem that they were so, they were so likely to perform sacrifices to other gods. However, if they'd become believers in Jesus, and we hear about this in, for instance, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where he has to engage with some of his followers in Corinth about the fact that some of them actually do want to take part in sacrificial rituals in what we would call pagan temples or pagan contexts, and they don't really see the problem because they said something like, "Oh well, you know, we know that those pagan gods aren't real now." But what's to stop us from going and taking part in the sort of sacred barbecue that our friends are going to hold up at the Temple of Aphrodite today? Of course, which reveals or reflects the fact that sacrifice often was a social occasion and a festive occasion that involved plenty to eat and drink. So sacrifice in these contexts takes up 
not just the part of our life that we would call religious, but it takes up other parts of life that we might think of as social, festive, celebratory, and eating and drinking is very much a part of them. So, again, Christians couldn't avoid that question about what do we do about sacrifices now that we're Christians. Mm. If they were Jews, well, initially they want to take part in the sacrifices of the temple. If they're not Jews, they're sort of stuck because like Jews, Christians came to reject the the worship of, of idols, of pagan gods and so forth. Something changed uh, in the year 70 of the first century when uh, the Jewish people rose up in rebellion against the Roman Empire. The Romans came in and flattened the temple. They destroyed the Jerusalem temple and put it into the state in which it's sort of found today up, up to a point where there's no temple standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem anymore. And this, with with occasional flickers over the next few centuries, this really meant that Judaism was no longer a sacrificial religion in the literal sense of offering animals or offering grain to God and burning offerings and so forth. And Christians of that era were quick to point to this fact and to connect it with their experience of Jesus. Between the Jesus event and their experience of Jesus and what they saw about the end of sacrifice in Judaism, they sort of drew the fundamental conclusion that sacrifices of that old order had been had basically passed out of existence, that it was no longer part of the divine will to have sacrifices of that kind, at least. And that's been a thread of Christian theology ever since, really, that, that there is a kind of non-sacrificial or anti-sacrificial strand in the way Christians think about sacrifices and would often wield that kind of rhetoric when they looked at the the sacrificial rituals of other cultures, for instance, as Christianity expanded and came across other peoples, other religions and so forth. Oh, you know, they're still knocking their heads off sheep and throwing the blood around. Well, you know, we gave all that stuff up centuries ago, you know, because mm. of Jesus or because of the Jerusalem temple and so forth. But at the same time, there was another strand of Christianity, another part of, of Christianity that said, well, actually, maybe we do have a sacrifice of sorts because from the earliest time that we have access to, the Christians were meeting together regularly to share a meal, which, of course, is what we would variously call the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Mass. And from the earliest time that we have access to, Christians used aspects of sacrificial imagery and ideas to talk about that meal as well, which isn't so surprising because it was another form of festive, celebratory gathering. In fact, although there weren't animals involved, it was not so difficult to imagine that that was a kind of sacrifice from some points of view because they shared bread and wine, they offered them to God, at least symbolically, um, and they remembered Jesus and shared in them and, of course, came to talk about them as involving a communion in his body and blood, which sounds like rather sacrificial language when you think about it. So on the one hand, the Christians are saying sacrifice is not something we need to do because we don't have to kill animals and that's a rather irrational violence and, and nasty sort of thing. On the other hand, we've got a sacrifice of our own, which is of a much more you know, pure and um, defensible character that doesn't involve some of, the, of the, the, the dross and the mess of pagan and Jewish sacrifice as it had been. So you get these two strands continuing through Christian history about um, sacrifice as criticised or rejected or excluded, and on the other hand, of sacrifice rather as something which has been transformed, something which has been appropriated within Christian practice, but on a different basis. And particularly, of course, in relation to thinking about Jesus himself. And while you know that isn't something I'd mentioned so far, the fact that Jesus himself was often spoken of 
in early Christian writings as being a kind of sacrifice himself was not irrelevant to this mm. question. And of course, when you find a, a document like the letter to the Hebrews, for instance, in the Christian New Testament, which talks about Jesus as being both a high priest and a sacrificial victim who is of a superior kind to the offerings that were made within Judaism, then we can see a kind of transformative intellectual process going on there where sacrifice as it had existed historically, like in the Jerusalem temple, was understood to be a kind of uh, a dry run for the real thing, which was Jesus' own death and resurrection and him becoming the, the true sacrifice which made all other sacrifices unnecessary. So so anyway, there's this ambiguity within Christian tradition about sacrifices being something which had once had a place but now longer no longer did, or as something which had once had a particular form but had now been transformed, transmogrified into Eucharistic practice and into the beliefs that Christians held about Jesus himself and his person and his death in particular as being a kind of sacrifice, which is actually a rather remarkable move when you think about it. I suppose that is the a key belief uh, in many um, uh, Christian denominations. Certainly, if you listen to any worship song, even written in the past 10 years, I reckon one in 10 has lamb in it, refers to oh. Jesus as the lamb. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the sacrificial language that is so um, deeply running through uh, every part of the doctrine that, that most people seem to, to believe in and subscribe to. And I guess the idea is that um, previously something had to be paid to get right with God, something had to be sacrificed to get right with God after the death of Jesus. Now that debt has been paid as more language that's, that we often hear used mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in these uh, worship songs. The debt has been paid and there is no longer a payment needed to get right with God. We are permanently right with God. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how it was understood early on right after the death of Jesus? Or how long did it take for that shift to occur? Well, all all those elements that you've just described, Dom, are, are there in ancient Christian writings. That's for sure. The idea of Jesus being spoken of as a as a lamb or a sacrificial victim, and also ideas of of Jesus um, paying some kind of debt or of Jesus liberating people from sin and so forth. But in fact, if you look more closely at those early Christian writings, you see that there are actually about four or five different ideas going on there, and not just one. So, for instance, the idea that Jesus pays some sort of debt or ransom isn't actually a sacrificial idea, it's an economic idea. You know, you, I go to the market, I pay something, I get something. That's basically a kind of commercial metaphor. Um, then sometimes you have Jesus depicted as a kind of, uh, you know, warrior or king who defeats evil and frees his people from bondage, which is, of course, harking back to the imagery of the Exodus and the experience of the Israelites in, in Egypt. And then you sometimes also get people spoken of as if uh, sin is a form of slavery and that Jesus, again, in terms that are a bit more like economic, but also a bit political, that Jesus frees us from the status of slavery. Now, sacrifice isn't about any of those things. It's actually a different field of metaphor altogether. But uh, it, it, and it works typically, if you look at ancient Jewish thinking about sacrifice, Uh, either as um, a sacrifice offered for purification or for uh, for the expiation of sin. Expiation may not be a word that most people use on a day-to-day basis, but it's it's one of the ways in which ancient Jewish sacrifice seems to have been understood to work, that for certain uh, certain circumstances in life, for instance, when someone had incurred a kind of moral or moral guilt or a kind of ritual impurity that they needed to account for their sin in a way that involved making a sacrificial offering 
Um, so Jesus gets depicted in early Christianity in, in all those different ways. And then what subsequently happens, though, as your worship song examples were revealing, is that the different metaphors kind of get mashed together. And so people assume that when you mean sacrifice, you mean something like penal substitution, you know, which is a different kind of doctrinal idea altogether. Or that you know, when an economic metaphor is being wielded in thinking about what it is that Jesus does, then that's somehow sacrificial just because it involves the idea of Jesus doing something for us. Mm-hmm. Which, when you look at how sacrifice works in the ancient world, that's not necessarily the case. Um, sacrifice isn't always about guilt or sin it's sometimes just about celebration or thanksgiving for instance you know um oh i've you know just had a new grandson let's go down to the temple and knock the head off a sheep and have a barbecue with my friends hooray you know there's nothing about guilt or sin in that at all that's thanksgiving and that might be the basis for sacrifice in judaism in certain instances but what happens is that people in an era when when sacrifices sort of begun to wane in popularity as a practice partly because of the rise of christianity itself people will go back and read a book like the letter to the hebrews and read its very strong sort of supersessionist understanding about how sacrifice is something that belongs to the old order and now jesus has brought in a new order that they sometimes if i could put it this way they take hebrews at face value which mean doesn't mean to say that i don't think people should read hebrews carefully and thoughtfully but what i mean is that there are a lot of things that went on in sacrifice that the letter to the Hebrews doesn't talk about. But when, right. the, when in the letter to the Hebrews does talk about Jesus as being like a high priest or like a victim whose, sins, whose, um, whose sacrifice deals with human sin and guilt, uh, that's a, a theological construct with great force. But it doesn't actually tell us much about what sacrifice was like on a more day-to-day basis for many of the people who took part in it. So this is a broad question then but off the back of that what do you think are the some of the main misconceptions about sacrifice that need to be re-examined mm. well i think the most fundamental one is that it's really always assumed to be about one thing um the uh if, if you look at the way sacrifice gets used in day-to-day conversation today you know, if you if you're out in the street and you're talking to somebody and the word sacrifice pops into conversation, I can bet that it's going to be in one of three or four contexts. Um, And it won't be about religion, by the way. It won't be about religion at all. It'll be something like, um, oh, you know, my parents sacrificed enormously to, you know, send me to school, such and such a place, right? That's one example. Or um, if it's maybe, uh, you know, Anzac Day or Remembrance Day or something like that, or we're really thankful for the sacrifices that our um, services personnel have made to keep the country safe and so forth or um, and and basically there's even those those two examples are very different they actually have a, a fundamentally sort of similar narrative bubbling below the surface which is that people think that a sacrifice is what happens when somebody accepts or inflicts upon themselves a kind of harm or violence or loss for the sake of some greater good which might be their family members or it might be their country or of course it might be god even in in certain contexts but in in all those ways in which sacrifice gets used in contemporary sort of secular conversation casual conversation sacrifice means uh, i accept a loss for the sake of some other person or for a greater good to which i'm committed now there are sacrifices in the ancient world that work a bit like that but that's not how sacrifice generally works in the ancient world and in fact uh, my my suggestion about this would be that it takes the christian 
influence in Western society, and it takes Christian thinking about the person of Jesus himself to get to the point where we assume that what sacrifice is about is someone accepting pain, suffering, or violence for the sake of a greater good. And guess who that one person is? It's Jesus. The Jesus becomes the key way in which Western thought thinks about sacrifice in general. And even though today the person you're talking to in the coffee shop who talks about the sacrifices their parents made may not believe in Jesus or may never have heard of Jesus, they are actually using a category of thought or a narrative that derives from Christian theology. It doesn't mean to say that it's right, by the way, the fact that it derives from Christian theology, because there's better Christian theology and worse Christian theology. I don't mean to say or, or, that, that it's utterly and always wrong. I don't mean to say that that isn't actually a fundamental truth about the way Christians experience the death of Jesus, that, that his death is something which obviously is violent and does involve his own suffering and loss and that people benefit from what he's going through. That I, uh, we, we, can, we can sort of think that theory through uh, probably in a, in a happy sort of way, although it needs to be qualified, I think, as well. But it doesn't actually tell us necessarily what an ancient Greek or Jewish person would have thought they were doing when they went to sacrifice on an average day because that kind of notion of sacrifice as being about the expiation of sin for instance it was only one of the things for which they might have undertaken sacrifice the other thing that's really different i think is that when um uh, you know a, an ancient jewish sacrificer goes up to the temple with pigeon or sheep under their arm you know ready to offer a sacrifice and so forth they're not really doing anything altruistic they're not really incurring any suffering or loss themselves. You ask the sheep how it feels about the <laughs> sacrifice, and you might get close to the experience of suffering or loss. But this is a this is a kind of collapse or religion of those ideas, which I think Christian theology has again undertaken, which doesn't actually help us to understand what sacrifice is really about in the ancient world. It's not about altruism. It might be about death, at least if an animal victim is involved, but not all sacrifices are animal victims. Uh, and it might have been about expiation or purification or dealing with sin but it wasn't always sometimes it's about thanksgiving sometimes it's about aspiration you know god i, I want to sacrifice this sheep to you because i'm hoping for better crops next year well that's not altruistic that's a transaction you know mm. that's 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 sort of trying to make a rational economic choice based on what you think god does for your crops i think there's a lot of transactional thinking that's that's crept in it was interesting you were saying before how some of those atonement theories have all kind of merged into one another mm. um and i think transactional thinking is the is the one key element particularly for western theology that snuck its way into um certainly into penal substitutionary atonement but it, it snuck its way into the, to what was just uh yeah that was a religious idea to go to give something to get something in some form it wasn't the total sum of what sacrifice was about but that was a big element of where you know you give something um and and yet we've said so we've sort of morphed this angry god into there in the background which is the other sort of elephant in the room here is mm. that that someone needs to be appeased um and so the the sacri- the transactional idea instead of being seeing the sacrifice that sacrificial system is being transformed it's actually snuck that transactional idea in and put some different language on it i think i think that's often happened and if we take for instance the the medieval Christianity to which the Reformation was responding, then even though you know there can be caricatures on both sides about how people saw things in the in the 16th century, for instance, that there is an element of truth in the objection that that medieval Christianity in in the Western world had turned the Eucharist into a sort of sacrifice that was 
purely transactional. You know, the more masses that get said for the soul of a particular person, the less time they have in purgatory, this sort of stuff. Now, that's not the whole of their Eucharistic theology or piety. That can be a caricature. But there's an element of truth in that. And uh, that, I think, was to misconstrue the character of the Eucharist as as a sacrifice. Uh, and the Reformers, of course, took up cudgels against all such thinking and, and got to the point of, uh, of wanting to say that the Eucharist couldn't be a sacrifice because they assumed that a sacrifice meant what medieval Catholicism had said a sacrifice meant, which meant that the more often you do it, the more divine favour you accrue for yourself in this sort of transactional kind of mode, that it would be like putting more um, more grace in your bank balance the more often you went to Mass or had a Mass said or whatever it was. But that's um, just as the medieval view of the Mass as a kind of transactional sacrifice wasn't adequate, in all honesty, the the reformers' rejection of the Eucharistic sacrifice in an absolute way was a bad answer to a bad problem. You know, if you, you, you the answers you get to a theological problem depend upon the questions you ask in the first place. You ask bad questions, you get bad answers. And whereas the Eucharistic um, practice of the ancient church was often suffused with the language of sacrifice, but not with the idea that if you went to the Eucharist, then you bought divine favour, or that you could somehow. Uh, account for your sins simply by going to Mass or anything like that. Rather, the Eucharist of the ancient church is depicted as a different kind of sacrifice of which there was still a vestigial memory. The idea was that it was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It was more like the one where you say, you know, I've got a new grandchild, I'm going to take a lamb to the temple and slaughter it and celebrate with my friends. The Eucharist was understood more to be that kind of response to divine gift. In other words, if you call it a transaction, okay, but it's not the transaction that says, if I give you something, God, will you give me something back? It was more the opposite. It was like God has dealt graciously graciously with me and I want to show my own thanksgiving even though I can't give God anything God needs. Nevertheless, I believe that it's part of what I'm called to is to act with thanksgiving and to celebrate. So the Eucharist is originally figured more in those terms, I think. And I guess also there's a lot of cultural context that's missed there, that it's not just going to grab a sheep from a random field. It would be one of your sheep, I guess. You're giving have, up something of yours. That's, well, that's true. And uh, it is that's an interesting feature cross-culturally, really, that, that sacrifices typically do have to be something that come from your own property. And so I, I could have overstated that notion that, that the sacrifice doesn't really cost anyone something. I mean, it costs you something, but it doesn't damage you. You know, if mm. I take a sheep from my flock and sacrifice it... Um, I'm giving it as a gift. So, and we don't imagine typically that gifts are damaging or harmful to us, do we? We rather assume that the giving of gifts is something which celebrates and blesses the relationships that we have. But that's true. And uh, that is an interesting aspect of sacrifice cross-culturally, that whether it's um, something like grain or bread or whatever, or something like an animal, it typically has to be something that's come from your own labor and activity. Um, For instance, it's very rare, and this is going across cultures now, not just in Judaism and, and ancient Mediterranean contexts, but it's typical that sacrifices have to be something which is produced from domestic labor, from, from one's own agricultural action. You can't, you can't go out and, um, and hunt an animal and claim that that's a sacrifice because it wasn't something that belonged to you. So it doesn't have the character of gift if it's something that you have... Uh, foraged or stolen or anything like that. Um, it's also interesting, for instance, that um, this is a quirky sidelight, but fish are rarely sacrificed um, mm. because fish, by definition, are sort of game, if you like. You know, they're wild. They're wild things. I, I've, I've sometimes 
demonstrated to students in a way that the podcast can't convey that there's a a practical problem with sacrificing fish. You know, if you can imagine the live fish on the altar and the sort of escaping the grip of the priest and so forth. But um, the uh, but but it's actually a demonstration of that same principle that a sacrifice has to be a gift and a gift has to be something that is yours. Mm. So even if it is an animal's life that you give, um, uh, then it's a life which has somehow been entrusted to you that is capable of being made as a gift to another person. And I suppose it's it's such a, a grateful giving rather than a we we might understand sacrifice to always be a fearful giving that I've got to appease the gods right. or God. Right. But it, it but what you're painting isn't a fearful uh, you know are we okay now God I did this for you. Mm. It's more of a how good you have been to me. This is my thanks. That's definitely right. And even even the other sacrifices, for instance, the there's a whole code of sacrificial rituals laid out in the book Leviticus in the Pentateuch and. Leviticus, um, even though it's not everybody's idea of a ripping yarn, <laughs> it is interesting insofar as it lays out the, the, the sort of instructions for the particular kinds of animal and the, and the particular purposes for which different forms of sacrifice might be offered. Even the ones that are more about things like guilt and sin are not depicted in terms of you know assuaging the wrath of the angry God. There's, no, there's nothing like that in the Hebrew Bible, to be honest, as far as that kind of... Uh, rationale for the sacrificial system is concerned. The reason that people have to sacrifice to deal with guilt or sin is more to sort of restore the order of human and cosmic reality, that that when someone uh, um, is guilty either of some deliberate act of, of, you know, a misdeed, or often, in fact, there's more attention given in these texts to people who accidentally uh, become impure you know for instance if you touch a corpse if you you know somehow inadvertently become ritually impure you have to offer a sacrifice but it it feels more like a sort of a ritual reboot of one's life mm. than like mm. anything to do with trying to deal with a god who is mad because you you did something wrong that that kind of psychologizing of of the divine person is is not the, the picture that the Hebrew Bible gives. And I love the idea of a reboot, and I wonder then, interesting to hear from you, how, how you see that as playing out in the Eucharist, mm. you know, because I think there's a lot in the Eucharist that, yes, we, we have that element of joy, thanksgiving, but there's also renewal and recreation in the Eucharist, and that gets lost when we get the wrong kind of atonement theory, I think. Yes. Well, I, th- I think the, the Eucharist, it seems to me, um, if I was trying to think about this in a more constructive theological way. The, the Eucharist has elements in it of a variety of the ancient sort of sacrificial rituals. Because, for instance, what one obvious one you'll, you'll know is that we, we often connected with Passover, which is a very particular kind of sacrificial ritual because the Last Supper is associated with Jesus' own death and, and is you know, presented by, at least by three of the Gospels, as performed as part of a Passover meal. And the Passover is sacrificial, broadly speaking, but it doesn't have anything to do with assuaging guilt or sin. It's about the celebration of God's liberation of Israel historically and of participation in that liberation. So the Eucharist, insofar as it's like a Passover, is like a celebration of how we have been rebooted, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, But then there are also ways in which, you know, people's personal experience of receiving the Eucharist sometimes does relate more to experiences of, of guilt, sin and shame and that their capacity to feel that the Eucharist is offered to them graciously by God uh, and, and is the means of, of realising their own reboot, you know, is still quite a powerful 
potential experience. But when when the church celebrates the Eucharist together, I think it's it's inherently a kind of multifaceted yes. action, which doesn't simply choose one of those threads, but is open to being looked at from a variety of angles as all of them. Yeah, and, and we often say, you know, there, there is the mystery there because it is a variety and you can't say this is what the Eucharist is. This is this is what's happening when we're up there and we break bread and we share wine. Um, and there's the mystery that we have to say, well, we're not entirely sure what's going on, but we know it is. I know Peter and I often often will say, you know, if, if it's the one thing that if they said we couldn't, we couldn't have a Eucharist in the service anymore, we'd be out of here. You know, it, we just wouldn't do the job anymore. There's, mm. This is this is all we've got on some yeah. levels. This is when we come to worship. This is this is where it's at. Yeah. Um, even though we cannot explain it, even though it is multifaceted and has multiple meanings, but it can encapsulate all of those. And it is. And there's that idea of encounter, I think, there too, of a contemporary, current, present moment encounter also contained. And that's also, I think, an element in ancient sacrifice that even though. It's not true in Jewish and Israelite sacrifice that you sort of share with the God in some immediate way that's like Eucharistic communion. Nevertheless, there is an aspect of communion in ancient sacrifice. It's typically that a part of the offering is taken and burnt on the altar, which is understood to be a way of conveying it to God so that God becomes a kind of participant in the meal. So the communion of ancient sacrifice is typically more like eating with the God rather than, as sometimes Christian theology has put it, eating God, you know. So that, that's, that's a more difficult sort of set of symbols to, to, to make sense of relative to sacrifice because it isn't, it isn't a part of either Jewish or Greek sacrifice that you, you eat the God himself, mm. but rather that you dine with the God as guest, you know, as fellow guests, you become companions, which is, of course, the word companion even means that literally, people who eat bread together. It's funny you say that. I remember I brought a friend to my youth group uh, many years ago when I was in high school, and um, and he was a bit concerned about the cannibalistic nature of mm. how uh, the the Eucharist was, I, how it proceeded in that particular service that we ran that night. And I, growing up in the church, had never examined it, and I um, had a nightmare that night about that. About it, it is quite an intense idea. So, do you think an idea of the Eucharist then has been misunderstood when it when it looks when it's looked at like that? It's that that symbolism of Jesus' body and blood. I think, like some of the other things we were just saying about symbolism of sacrifice, is not readily distilled just to one sort of idea. I think, and so that's that's sort of the disclaimer I should put before trying to venture any other thoughts about it but um, of course what this is based on is the tradition of the words of the last supper where you know jesus says this is my body and and in two versions this is my uh, blood you if you read carefully you'll see that the other two versions actually don't say this is my blood they say this cup is the new covenant in my blood which doesn't mean that there's blood in the cup it means that the covenant has been made by the shedding of his blood as a sacrifice but it's not what you're drinking so the symbolism in Luke's version and in the first Corinthians version is actually not the imagery of drinking blood it's mm. the imagery of sharing a festive cup at a sacrifice where a victim has been offered and of course in the Jewish sacrificial ritual the blood of the victim was very important but it wasn't consumed it was shed on the ground on cast upon the altar as part of the ritual because blood was understood to be part of the portion that belonged to the deity and not something which would be shared by the people even though the people would eat the meat of the sacrifice so even just that, that you know technical point so to speak indicating that the different versions of the 
gospel stories depict this differently is just me sort of underlining the fact that the symbolism is not straightforward, that it's not meant to be just sort of saying, well, if you eat the Eucharist, you're actually eating Jesus' body and drinking Jesus' blood, because even the classic texts of Eucharistic theology don't quite say that. I mean, the the cannibalistic part is, is still you know difficult to explain away but the the other part i'd say about the eating of jesus body is that um jesus in the eucharist is being presented as a kind of metaphorical sacrificial victim and to eat him is like eating the the lamb of a i was going to say a, a real sacrifice perhaps that's not the right language to use but the the lamb of a conventional sacrifice um something like that and um in particular, the way the Last Supper depicts that event as a Passover meal, it's really a way of making very visceral and immediate the notion that Jesus is a kind of Paschal lamb, you know, a Paschal lamb whose, whose slaughter becomes a symbol of the way in which God has delivered us from, you know, death into life. So while that doesn't explain away the difficulty or the confronting nature of the language, the metaphor, and I'll say metaphor without wanting to sort of beg too many questions about you know, Eucharistic literalism and, and symbolism and so forth. But the, the reason that the metaphor of the Passover is applied so deeply into that story is really just to emphasize that the mere fact that it is a kind of, that Jesus' death is itself a kind of Passover from death to life for the Christian who takes part in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And to talk about the Eucharistic bread as his body is, mm-hmm. is to say that you're participating in his Passover in the way that, that an observant Jew undertakes to celebrate Passover and says in the the traditional you know Haggadah that you're not to say that it was your ancestors who took part in the Passover we ourselves have taken part in the Passover because we've actually eaten this food and I, I think it's really important to bring out the the all of these different different metaphors that are at play there because that's that's sort of the point it can't be pinned down what what, what we do in worship the Eucharist can't be pinned down to one particular meaning or else we've got an idol on our hands and the and then when you have an idol you don't have an encounter for for my way of thinking mm. i think it's about having that paradox holding the contradictions and saying these these things actually you know whether we're talking um the new covenant or we're talking blood or we're talking you know the, these some of these things are, are a little contradictory you know and but instead of being able to resolve any of them you can't around the eucharistic table around you know around the altar we can't resolve anything it actually is a space that's held really widely open and it's that wide openness that um that where the tensions are not resolved where we have to where we embrace those metaphors and different things mean different at, to different people at different times it's something you experience and something you encounter and that's where it's, it's more like that icon idea of of something that opens up as 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 a way in rather than a closed idol that we can say point to it and say look there's god mm, yeah I know um, sometimes people can get caught up in the literally nailing things down. I know um, I read on your, I think, blog it was, Andrew, um, a discussion about whether or not uh, you could have gluten-free wafers at communion or, (laughs) you know, the importance of wheat. Now, as a celiac myself, that's quite a sensitive Ah, topic. I bet it is. Um, But but how things like that, we can spend years debating about, is it okay to have a gluten-free wafer? Um, which does feel as though it might be missing the greater mystery, the encounter of the Eucharist. What, what, how did the early church view the Eucharist, I guess, is, one, is a question I'm curious to ask. But then also, how have you encountered the Eucharist? What, is it, what does it mean to you individually? Mm. Right, well, gosh, you've thrown out a lot there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, the ancient church, uh, I think, understood the Eucharist to be, and I've already suggested this, to be a kind of sacrifice, mm. 
um, by which they believed that by sharing um, a meal of bread and wine together uh, in memory of Jesus and giving thanks for Jesus, that they had a kind of communion with him. And uh, that's putting it in very minimalist terms, not because there isn't more to be said, but because I think when we look at the texts of the first couple of centuries, we actually find them using different language to talk about exactly what this meant. And even texts in the New Testament itself uh, give us a hint of a variety of different kinds of encounter with Jesus. So the Last Supper stories themselves, which you've just mentioned, seem to refer to the idea of, of an experience of communing with Jesus in his body and blood in a kind of visceral sort of way. But we also find, for instance, the story of Jesus' encounter with two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke after the resurrection where they break bread with Jesus, he breaks bread, and then they hadn't recognized him prior to this, but people will remember the story, I guess, that when he breaks bread, they recognize him, and then he disappears from their sight, and then they go back and tell the others that they'd met Jesus and that he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread, which I think is another version of talking about the encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist, that it wasn't in that sense a case of, well, we, you know, we ate him and drank him, but rather we ate with him we found him to be with us we experienced his presence and uh, i think that that that's a related but slightly different strand of eucharistic um, experience that we that we find in ancient christianity in fact the earliest eucharistic prayers that we have from the first couple of hundred years uh, don't put the same emphasis upon the recitation of the last supper story that we've become familiar to uh, in the, um, the 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 liturgies of of later times and what we find is prayers that give extended thanks to God for Jesus. You know, we thank you, God, that you've given us Jesus. And uh, so thanksgiving is really the key note rather than commemoration or remembrance. And that's why the ancient, the most ancient word and the most persistent word for the event is Eucharist, thanksgiving, rather than something more like, you know, Mass, Communion, Lord's Supper, or whatever. Those are not the terminology of the ancient church. So the, the ancient church is... Celebrations are characterized by thanksgiving and by a sense of communion with Jesus, but perhaps as much with Jesus as table companion in that act of thanksgiving as of Jesus as being the, the main meal. Mm. Um, as far as the elements of the Eucharist are concerned, since you mentioned you know gluten and, and so forth, um, we, uh, we believe they ate bread and drank wine, which isn't really going to surprise anybody who listens to the podcast, but that's, it might be that we don't necessarily understand what that means to them to do that. Um, uh, bread and wine are actually the staple foods of the ancient world. It's not, as if, um, it's not as if they sort of have meat and potatoes on the table and then somebody says, oh, go fetch the bread and wine so we can have a Eucharist. Uh, rather, um, bread is the central element of a meal, and wine is typically drunk at, in the meals of the ancient Mediterranean. It's not as if that was just a special occasion kind of thing. Even poor people got to drink wine on a regular basis. It just wasn't very good wine. So, in fact, there was a sense in which they were um, not merely performing a sort of token rituals with bread and wine. I, I would suggest that at the earliest point, probably for the first couple of hundred years, what they're actually doing is sharing a meal of bread and wine, which is both absolutely as sacramental and sacred as the most high church catholic or orthodox leaning christian today would think of the eucharist as being sacred but it was probably also enough for them to satisfy their physical hunger and we find those two ideas difficult to put 
together in the religious sensibility of the modern world. But in fact, that's exactly how the ancient eater would have imagined a sacred meal would work. Because if you went to a meal at the Jerusalem temple or a sacrifice at the Jerusalem temple, or you went to a sacrifice in a Greek or Roman temple, you would expect to go away having had enough to eat. But you also thought you were going to a, a, a meal of sacred significance in which you had an experience of encounter with the deity. And now that changes probably in the late second or early third centuries for a variety of reasons which are curious and may or may not be interesting. But in the end, people uh, have an experience which is more like that that would be familiar to probably to most you know contemporary Christian worshippers of receiving token amounts of bread and wine because they understand that what the meal conveys to them or what it performs for them doesn't require them to be physically satisfied. It just requires everyone to receive something so that they're communing with with one another. Um, I think that the uh, the wine would have been made from grapes and it would have been fermented. So just in case anyone's out there wondering whether either for good or ill that grape juice would count, it's just grape juice doesn't really exist in the ancient world, which might sound odd. Um, we'll put it this way, until they invented pasteurization of grape juice in the 19th century. The idea of a kind of non-alcoholic Eucharist wasn't really an, an option because in ancient Mediterranean climate, you squeeze your grapes one day, you've got some kind of wine the next. Um, the bread, uh, this, I, I mentioned this because of your celiac comment, the bread could have been made from different grains, I suspect, although most of them would have been glutinous. I mean, but in fact, the one reference we have to someone in the New Testament with a particular kind of bread is not to wheat bread, but to barley. We're in the the version of the the sign of the loaves, the miracle of the loaves in John chapter 6, uh, where, you know, there are five loaves and two fish, as in the other versions, but we're told specifically that the boy who gives them the food has five barley loaves, which seems to be an indication that they're bread of the poor. Barley would have been cheaper and more associated with a, a, the diet of the poor than wheat, which would have been more for city folks and uh, would have been desirable. But... Um, I would say that even if you wanted to be historically authentic, there's no reason that some other non-glutinous grains couldn't have been considered as something people would have made bread from. So I just mentioned that for the, <laughs> the celiac listeners and for those who are otherwise concerned with those things. Um, but then you asked me about my own my own experience of, of Eucharist, and that's sort of difficult to kind of um, summarise in um, close to 50 years of, of, <laughs> of, of, of receiving and 30 years of presiding um, at these things, but um, I think that uh, what I said about the ancient Christians' experience has come to mean something that it's helped me to interpret my own experience of Eucharistic practice, and I do think that I've come to have a, a clearer focus on the idea of Eucharist as Thanksgiving, and uh, but also on the issue that we were touching on maybe 15 minutes ago of the the multivalent character of the Eucharist. That the Eucharist is not simply one thing. If someone asks you to give an explanation of the Eucharist in, in one minute, well, do your best, but understand that every, every that every, every time you tried to do that in one minute, it should sound probably quite different if you were trying to give an adequate response to it. So I think I probably also experienced it as Thanksgiving, but also as uh, you know reconciliation and repentance, also as you know the reboot, as it were, you know of my own experience, uh, also as a a means of strong connection with other people. I think that that's, that's perhaps easily lost, you know, at some points. Uh, you know, you imagine that you can go and receive your communion with God, but 
it's not going to make any difference to the fact you can't stand the person in the next pew or something like that. Yeah. I, I love Brene Brown's take on why she goes to church. She, mm. she says, there's only three reasons I go to church. And one is to sing with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for those people who don't get the chance for communal singing, you know, I think that's why pub choirs emerged lately uh-huh, as yeah. a movement, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's one of those human experiences that is incredible for helping you feel as one and unified with other, other people and just the joy of it. So she goes, sing with. And she says to pass the peace, and then the third one is to be at the altar rail with people that you may not like mm-hmm. or that you fundamentally disagree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that element of reconciliation um, and unity and, and and oneness for a whole lot of broken people together is is one of the key you know key meanings that come out of Eucharist, and and certainly is something you have to experience. But I think you can also just touching on your point about meals and being full. Um, and actually, the you know the ancient world that that the you would you would be eating for the sake of being satisfied too, yes. you know, and I think if we if anyone can think of a really wonderful meal they may have had with family and friends, um, and, and I would point to that and say that was that's also a Eucharistic meal that that there's times that we sit here and we we um and, and that's why I say it's that you can dredge your, your own memories for those moments of connection because you, you look at what's present when when it really works when you have a really special meal with people you love mm. or maybe people that you have disagreed with and now are sitting down eating together there will always be elements there's elements of joy and thanksgiving in it there's also I think a, a certain sacrificial element of you you lay down your own ego for a while to be with to really be with another person to to allow them to have a place at the table their their voice to be heard and to really be loving them that naturally involves a certain laying down of, of the self and there's also those elements of, of reconciliation of peacemaking and just joy of connection mm. and and so those wonderful meals that we can all think back or hopefully we can think back and in somewhere in our memory and and recollect i think we're, we're in the eucharist there too mm. Mm. I like that idea of connecting with other meals too. I think that um, this is another thing that's lost with contemporary practice. When the ancient Christians sat down to eat a meal of bread and wine, it wouldn't have looked very different from their other meals of bread and wine, but rather it would have been transformed by the context, by the character of the ritual associated with it. But the connections would have been much stronger. It would have been self-evident that when you went back and had another meal without those things that there was a resonance between them and uh, that that is perhaps a disadvantage that while we've been faithful to the tradition of using bread and wine as eucharistic elements which i think is right that if we don't eat bread and wine otherwise as as meal elements then we have to sort of work harder Mm. to make the connections with the rest of our eating i know that's uh that's rob bell's interpretation of the eucharist is uh he says it's that this food is holy as a reminder that all food is holy Mm. um which i I think has a strong resonance on that front Mm. um one point one more question i have on sacrifice is that i think the earliest introduction a lot of people have to sacrifice if they grew up in a church is the somewhat barbaric seeming story of abraham being called Uh. to sacrifice isaac Mm. um you know, which I think I've shared on the podcast before, made me terrified of my dad as a six-year-old oh, boy, wow. <laughs> thinking, well, maybe God will tell him, mm. go kill your son. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So I thought you might have an interesting perspective on that. <laughs> Obviously, understanding these traditions much more historically than many would um, on the topic of sacrifice. What do you make of that story? Well, well we could have another whole hour on that, but it's it's a very interesting story. Um, a couple of quick comments. Uh First, although this doesn't take away the horror of the story completely, it's worth noting that Isaac never gets sacrificed. Mm. And uh, I, I will say in the, the lectures I'm going to give this week that I think that sometimes people 
put too much weight on that story as if it were a sort of foundational narrative how sacrifice works, because in fact it's not. It's an exceptional story as far as sacrifice goes, not only because it's not a sacrifice, but also because it involves a human victim, which is a very strange kind of thing. Now, we who are used to thinking about sacrifice as something to do with altruism, something to do with soldiers, something to do with Jesus, the idea of it being a human victim doesn't sound weird, but in fact it's very weird. Sacrifices aren't, people aren't sacrifices. Now, having said that, yes, it's true, there are other instances in different cultures, there are also other instances even in religions of the ancient Mediterranean where it does seem that human victims were sometimes offered, and, and it may well be that there's some echo of those practices that's sort of lurking between the lines there in Genesis. But um, I think that the purpose of that story in its original context is not to tell us something about sacrifice, it's to tell us something about Abraham and something about God, and that sacrifice is simply an institution or a vehicle which is used as the sort of the, you know, the vehicle for, for this story to be told about the extraordinary character of Abraham's obedience. Now, that still leaves us with the, the unavoidable difficulty of the fact that you know a, a God who seems to ask that of Abraham but then doesn't, uh, and and of a, a father who seems to be willing to give up his son, but doesn't have to. <laughs> uh, that those those things remain as stories that I think are just going to have to be wrestled with. I'm I'm struck by your own experience of that, and that's a very potent example of how those stories can be construed in very problematic ways. And there are other stories like that as well in the Hebrew Bible. The Another one that comes to mind is the story of Jephthah's daughter in the book of Judges where you know the Israelite general promises rashly that he will sacrifice the first thing that you know comes down the path to greet him when he comes back to victory and it's his daughter and that that case actually is carried through according to the the story at least but I would say again that that doesn't actually tell us anything about the general practice of sacrifice it actually tells us something about uh, you know fidelity about um, stupidity about cruelty uh, about various things like that but those stories are those stories are exceptional rather than normative for thinking mm-hmm. about how sacrifice worked but you're telling those stories or hearing those stories originally in contexts where people did sacrifice every day but they sacrificed sheep and they sacrificed bread and they sacrificed pigeons and so the idea of sacrificing a human being has a particular kind of uh, horror attached to it because it's something you don't do rather than a particular kind of power because it's something you do. Mm. Um, that doesn't resolve all the, the problems associated with the stories. But I do think that the Abraham one in particular um, ha- has sometimes been overread as being something that helps to establish what the idea of sacrifice is. Right. Um, another interesting topic to just change tack, I guess, slightly a little bit um, is because you have such a historical understanding of the faith tradition, the Christian tradition, um, from its roots onwards, and I guess even before its roots. Um, there's a lot of talk uh, in the church and even in secular society about the place of, uh, I guess, religion as a whole, but the Christian religion in the world today and going forward. Mm. Um, you know, there's always the doom and gloom about the church declining and um, I, I read a comment you made about how the church has almost come full circle in a sense from being in the margins to being the imperial religion and now kind of going back to the margins. Where do you think we're at and where do you think we're going in terms of a, a journey is on the, um, on the, the faith path? Well, you, you, you summed it up nicely, I think, that I do think that we're kind of going through a process which is a little bit like unpicking the stitches of something that we put together 
back in the early medieval or late ancient period when the church threw its lot in so thoroughly with Western society and at least in the what we now call Europe and the, the Roman Empire that that we associated um, the agenda of Christianity so strongly with the power of Western civil authority that it became difficult for a thousand years or 1500 years to discern what was genuinely a, a Christian worldview or a Christian ethic from one which was a kind of generalized Western civilization one and as a result we found Christianity drummed into the service of extraordinary and terrible processes and institutions. Um, it is uh, an unwanted but a powerful gift to us to have the loss of privilege and the loss of power that's associated with the decline of the church into a the, 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 the sort of remnant status that it's going to find itself in and so I'm in, in that sense, you hear me being both pessimistic and optimistic at the same time. I do think that the decline of, of Christianity is not over. Um, I don't think that it will um, become extinct, uh, by the way. So I'm optimistic from that point of view. But I think that the church has farther to fall relative to its present status as an institution in the Western world that it hasn't bottomed out yet. I certainly see that in the United States where I live, for instance, where the fall is perhaps a more precipitous one because, you know, Australians have never been particularly religious compared to Americans. And Americans are just finding themselves in shock as they watch the, the experience of secularism kind of unfold with a rapidity, you know, within one generation that, that leaves people sort of gasping for breath by, by its, its, its uh, very pace. But I think that the gift, as, as I've already implied, is that this is an opportunity for the Christian church to ask itself what its real character and identity are. And I think it will find uh, new hearers, new adherents as well, who want something that the church is just discovering that it still has, which is mm -hmm. something a bit different from just sort of being the the, the chaplaincy department to Western society. Um, and, you know, there are different versions that takes. There is the sort of you know, the, the the Gothic cathedral version we're sitting next to. And I say that with great love and appreciation for the aesthetic and the tradition associated with it. But that, of course, is a, a monument to a particular kind of social synthesis that, you know, we're departing from. But it's also true down the street, you know, in the places that are having, you know, worship songs in cinemas that aren't being used on Sunday mornings because they're, they're connecting with and reflecting a particular form of contemporary Western capitalist sort of mentality in a way that, that the medieval Gothic looking church is reflecting you know 15th century sensibilities rather than 21st century sensibilities so there's self-criticism and there's reflection to go on across christian traditions and i think that we're still in the middle of that process um it'll be going on you know after my lifetime and so i can't exactly predict its path but uh but i see it as as both uh, gift and cost simultaneously it, it, it does leave us in an interest uh, an interesting position i suppose i, I know that some would say that it's hard for people of faith to be critical of corrupt power uh, systems when they are so inherently hand in hand with those systems, um, you know, has, as has been the case throughout history. So do you think perhaps the church is returning to its rightful place in some senses? I suppose that uh, there's a sense in which that's true. I mean, I, I, as someone, for, I mean, one of the reasons that you, you asked me before why the, the, the church of the ancient world is of such interest to me and it really was partly to do with with a sense I had and some of my teachers had uh, years ago that this was exactly what was happening that we were going back to a point where learning to be a minority and learning to be distinctive was going to be the church's vocation was going to be thrust upon us as a vocation whether we chose it or not 
but I do think I do think that it's fundamentally positive. And by that, I don't mean, by the way, that the church should retreat from having a public voice or that it should be less interested in processes of policy and practice in 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 the marketplace or in government or anything else. But it has to do so, I think, from the point of view of of being able to state a value proposition that um, that that is not simply the same as what the society itself understands its own good to be. And that's what why I made this sort of comment before about not being the chaplaincy department, so to speak. Uh, our job isn't to make people feel good about themselves regardless of what the character of the society is. I mean, to take one obvious example, which is relevant both in the United States and in Australia, the ways in which uh, refugees and asylum seekers are, are treated, for instance, seems to me to be a, a, a potential real test point for asking what true loyalty and what true uh, affinity mean. Because if a Christian, a person who is a Christian, understands their first loyalty to be to the Commonwealth of Australia or to the United States of America, then they might well think that, you know, well, we should have strong borders and, you know, we need to sort of defend our um, our self-interest and so forth. And they might still well, in good conscience and genuine good faith, go to church and pray and, and you know, be attempting to, to be good Christians. And God bless them. But from a genuinely Christian point of view, the asylum seeker is the person with whom I have the deepest affinity by way of what Jesus teaches me about who I'm supposed to have an affinity with, not the person who holds the same passport as me, not the, same, not the person who looks like me. So, in fact, you know, when you think of examples like that, I, th- I think it reveals how often we've substituted forms of ethnic identity, forms of racial privilege and forms of national identity for the way in which the Christian gospel actually demands particular attitudes on our part to those whom we encounter in our daily lives. I mean, you just think of Jesus in Matthew's gospel at the, gra- at the, at the judgment saying, you know, it's about whether you clothed and fed and visited me that tells me whether you're my sister or brother or not, not whether you acted nicely towards the people whom the world otherwise gave you to be your sisters or brothers, you know, as if that kind of existing family and social community was the thing where your faith was going to be tested. It's not that. I think that way that the church has been co-opted into into contemporary culture and and, and empire and power structures is is at the heart of of some of the problems that we're kind of talking around here. You know, that idea um, that that the church, I mean, probably we've moved past that in Australia. I think in the 1940s and 50s, there was a kind of, if you're Australian, you're Christian still a little, um, particularly if you're in a country town probably. But, of course, that's that's gone by by the board. And yet the church has still managed to align itself pretty strongly. And I, I like the way you, you talked about the different ways, different forms of fixed culture we align with, whether it's the, the Gothic tradition from the past or, or if we're um, aligning with more consumerist culture in the West in, in, in some expressions of church. And I think we always have to ask ourselves the question, notice when the outside looks like the inside, when the church is mirroring culture. And the way that I think we get past that is exactly what you're alluding to, because we have to encounter Jesus in the present. The church is always moving, you know, the spirit is always moving. And if we cannot see the face of Jesus in, a, in an asylum seeker, 
um, then, then you know we're, we're actually we're missing the, the 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 what the gospel is all about. You know, um, James Cone used to talk about the great James Cone who um, who died this year. You know, who talked about Jesus is black. You know, because that we need to be able to see um, in our culture, in our time where we find ourselves, those who are dispossessed, those who are on the margins, are always going to be expressions of Christ to us. Um, and if we can keep then whereas fixed expressions of church that start to get cozy with culture stop being able to have that kind of vision mm. I think this is also um, potentially a something that could be a vocation for those churches which have maintained forms of the traditional trapping and aesthetic and so forth like we, we are sitting next to a gothic cathedral I don't mean to say that a gothic cathedral is any closer to the heart of God than a mis- you know an underused cinema auditorium but the fact is that the mere fact of having a symbolic life which jars with the aesthetic and with the culture around us is a potentially a tactically useful stepping off point for thinking about how Christian culture is not whatever we're given um, by by our participation in the the, the, ne- the necessary you know day to day aspects of of contemporary society. Uh, as someone who's given, I guess, your life to. Uh, studying all of this stuff, Andrew, and, and has such a deep understanding of early Christianity and the early church. Um, well, is there one is there one element of that expression of faith that you wish people these days were more aware of? That you wish could be rediscovered or reclaimed? Could you boil it down to to one or or, or one lesson that we could learn from? Because I imagine over the past two thousand years since then, you know, through various interpretations and traditions being altered or adapted we've we've lost a lot we've changed a lot it's quite different from its original expression is there something of the roots of this that you'd like to see reclaimed well yeah that's another one of those things where my one minute speech probably ought to be a different (laughs) one each time you ask me over the space of a month or something like that but let me say one thing which is a a kind of answer that i don't think anyone in the early church thought that they were um, adopting a belief system in a kind of you know top of your brain sort of thing i'm going to assent to this particular set of propositions and then i'll get baptized and all be fine in fact it, it it worked the other way around often in ancient christianity that people were attracted to the life of the christian church because of what they saw about the practice of those who took part in it and they often um had to spend a couple of years learning how to behave the way the christians did before they would ever be accepted for baptism and only after they were baptized were they actually told some of the key propositions <laughs> which is so counterintuitive to a sort of modern view where everything sort of works you know from the brain outwards um, but there's something powerful about that, about the fact that to be formed as a Christian is not actually um, a, an intellectual exercise, but it's actually about learning particular sorts of habits. It's like learning particular ways of doing things. It's like, you know, uh, if, if I put it in, in more um, tongue-in-cheek terms, fake it for a couple of years and see how you do. Um, <laughs> of course, that's, that's, uh, it is tongue-in-cheek, but what I mean by that is that um, it is... It is something that can only be learnt by doing, and the uh, ancient um, Christian teachers, and for instance, some of those early desert fathers and mothers you may have heard of, people went off into the desert to, think, to be hermits and to spend their life in prayer and so forth. Um, you you see that they they describe themselves, for instance, as philosophers, which is sounds a bit odd to us. You know, how much time were they spending sort of reading and teaching and so forth? That did, wasn't what they meant at all. It meant, in the literal sense of the word philosophy, they were lovers of wisdom. And that wisdom was not understood to be an intellectual thing. It was understood to be a matter of practice. The true philosopher is the person who lives their life in charity. And if you don't, you know, if you find it too difficult to believe everything the Christian church does, what the Christian church does say or should say, I think is 
you know, just try it on. Just act as if you believed it <laughs> and see what would happen. And, and I say, if I put it that way, I'm probably not being quite so tongue-in-cheek because yeah. I think it's actually the encounter or the experience of being part of this reality which the church really has to offer rather than some sort of simple tracked version of saying, you know, if this is true, then this is true, and this is true. You know, give your heart to Jesus and all will be well. Well, it isn't. Yeah, really. couldn't couldn't agree more. And in some ways, all these conversations we had earlier about the Eucharist can come down to that too. Try and explain the Eucharist. Well, well, why don't you come along? Mm-hmm. Come along mm-hmm. and receive. Be part. Be in our community. Come and receive, and just see what happens mm-hmm. over over a period of months and years. It's so interesting because I think mo- a lot of people who are, have a strong faith life now would say that was how they ultimately came into it there was some faking it um yeah there was some being part of a tradition that they didn't fully intellectually agree with or you know maybe they were one foot in one foot out and then suddenly after a few years or maybe a decade or two decades they found themselves wholly committed to this right and it's it's funny you know talking of the 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 brethren down the street in the um in the cinema you know I, i i know from my own experience and friends and so on how often people in the sort of contexts which are very you know pentecostal or uh, fundamentalist are often looking left and right thinking gee i wish i really believed like they did (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh and you know bless them they sort of eventually probably get there if you know what i mean and Mm. and so i'm I'm not holding that up Mm. as a better or worse Mm. example than than our Mm. gothic cathedral version of it but it is actually about learning to be a particular way Mm. you know rather Mm. than just sort of imagining that something's going to sort of turn on like a light bulb yes. and, and all will be well. There are stories like that in the Bible, of course, but notice that they are stories in the Bible, which means that they're put there because they're exceptional. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not because this is everybody's experience every day. Yeah, mm. no, that's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. I feel, feel like we could have gone for another a few more hours if we had the time and the space. Well, <laughs> thanks, Dom, and thanks, Sue. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Dom. And uh, look, please do get on the On The Way Facebook page. If you haven't yet, search for On The Way Podcast or go to facebook.com forward slash St. John's On The Way and like the page there for all the upcoming podcasts. And we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way Podcast shortly.